You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Possible Taste. I'm Crokey Sharon Noonan and I have to say a special hello to the Sweeneys listening online across the pond in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was recently declared by Travel and Leisure as America's next great food city. So we'll have to do a Skype interview with you guys sometime to find out more about the food scene there. And talking about food scenes, I'm thrilled that one of my guests tonight is John McKenna of John and Sally McKenna's Guides I'll be finding out all about the Galway food scene from John. I'll also be talking to food writer Dee Laffin about hand blenders, who knew there was so much to talk about on that topic. Ron Forrestal will be here for his regular wine slot and Francis Nesbitt will be on the phone to tell me about the Kilkenny School of Food. If you want to get in touch with me, please feel free to drop me an email s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, short for organisation. But before you do, let's have a little tipple with Ron from Forrestal Wines. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're welcome to the studio. Valentine's is just over, but you've brought some nice sparkles in for us tonight, and I'm not talking about the ring variety. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Sharon. I thought it was worth uh, maybe people had either sparkling at the weekend, champagne, or now have a couple of bottles of it somewhere. So I thought we might discuss it just to uh, give people an idea of what's out there. A little explanation on, on each um, style, if you like. Okay, and you have three different, very different looking bottles there. Yes, well, sparkling wine um, is uh, available from all over the world. It comes from um, probably 10, 12 countries producing sparkling wine. Champagne is different, obviously, for the reason that it's it's uh, confined to the Champagne area of France. It has to be produced within the borders of Champagne to qualify as Champagne. Uh, that doesn't really uh, the sparkling in the rest of the world there's only one other um, uh, palliation one other sector is the same which is Prosecco has to be produced in the Prosecco area as well So is Prosecco actually a region in Italy? It's a region yeah it's actually a town and then the the extended region around it it's quite a big region now Um, uh, it's a layer of grape they use to make Prosecco but there's a, there's a whole lot of sparkling wine available from Italy outside of that area, and I actually have one of them here, um, which is not called Prosecco. Okay. But every you know exactly the same process, um, doesn't uh, command the same prices as Prosecco does. This bottle of Prosecco that you have here, tell us about it. So there's two basic styles of Prosecco. Then you'll have a frizzante. If you look at the label, it'll have it written on it. Uh, um, that means that it's a semi-sparkling. It has a lower sparkling. It tends to have a little cork in it or a screw cap. I was going to say it yeah. would often have the screw. Yeah, a screw cap. Generally, uh, sometimes a cork with a little string over the top, uh, which is a spago. That's the name for that kind of corkage. The string goes over just to protect the cork from being blown out. And it has no foil on the top. That's, that's very specific on that, on, on the ruling for it. It can't have any foil over it. Then the next level up from that is uh, spumante. Now, all, all producers of Prosecco would have both. They'd produce both. Spumante is the actual champagne process, exactly the same process as champagne, which is a bottle fermentation. It means they add yeast to a bottle, tilt it on its head, uh, leave it for probably about three to four weeks, and it generates its own carbonation inside the bottle. You're bringing back memories of my 18th birthday there when Dad would have sprung for a few bottles of Asti Spumante. Oh, a nice one, yeah. Yeah, again, that's another Italian sparkling product. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, the, the Spumante um, is, is a, st- a style of Prosecco. This one I have here is a Vignal uh, Spumante Prosecco. I use a lot in restaurants. They use it for pouring glasses of Prosecco. It's, it's pricey enough, though. They're going to cost like 18 50 a bottle. Whereas the screw cap or the other cork version tends to cost about 11 euros a bottle. Okay. Mainly because the duty is much higher uh, from the government. It's double from the Irish government. It's 640 a bottle duty on that alone. That's without VAT now. That's just duty. Um, and the process is much more expensive. So it means that the buying the product is more expensive. And often when you go on holiday to places like Italy or France, you see mm. these products and they're so much cheaper. So much cheaper, yeah. Now, now champagne doesn't tend to be an awful lot cheaper. Like if you think of, if you go into any of those supermarkets at the ports in France, for example, you'll find a champagne that will be cheaper. But if you look for any of the branded ones, like Moe, Clico, Mum, any of those, there won't be a huge gap in pricing. Uh, they tend to control the price fairly well all over the world, so it's not that much cheaper. But, yeah, it's champagne. Listen, champagne is fantastic. Um, it's very pricey. Like, I have a, a, two different champagne houses on the list, uh, one called Gosset. Um, it's costing about 48 euros a bottle. And then Henry Goutard, which is a more house-pouring champagne, costing about 36 euros a bottle. And that's that's when you buy it from you and you're having yeah. it at home. So if you see it in a restaurant, it's going to be substantially more. It is, yeah. Restaurants tend to charge, you know, and I see their justification for it. They, they tend to charge anywhere from 60 euros up um, for champagne. Um, and Prosecco tends to be around a 30 to 35 bracket. But uh, Prosecco is, is a kind of different product. It's a, it's a different grape variety. Champagne is using Chardonnay and Pinot Noir normally uh, as grapes, whereas the Glera grape used in Italy is a much more fruity one. It's, it's much fruity. It's not near as dry as, as, um, as champagne can be. Okay. And you've a pinky, peachy-looking one there. Yeah, this is, from, uh, this is from just a different region, region uh, down south in, in Italy. It's called Rosé Glamour. Now, it's a very flashy product, and it has this spago cork, which has a little string on the top. Uh, great value. It costs around 10 euros a bottle. That's lovely. It's really nice. 10 it's a euros fanta- is great value. I'm talking about the, the actual wine. Okay. Uh, but 10 euros is very good value. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very good value yeah. for this kind of thing. So, but the um, but the actual, the, the wine there is, it's really nice. It's a great drink. Is that wine in that or is that sparkling, it's sparkling yeah, wine? It's sparkling. Okay. Uh, now, the only thing is that with those screw caps or the, those other cart ones, um, like the full, the Spumante one has a pop-off champagne cork. These don't. You just need a wine opener to open it or a screw cap. The bubble tends to die a bit quicker. So you've got to use them faster just mm-hmm. you need to pour them and use them really okay uh, and there's no point put them into a fridge with a teaspoon in them or anything it's not going to save them so okay. they're going to die out within an hour or two uh, and then what i brought just to to show you that and i think these are a lovely idea for people who like prosecco um is a, a sniper of prosecco uh, from la marsa which is a really good producer of prosecco i do the full bottle versions of this as well but this is a 200 ml which basically you get about two champagne glasses out of because champagne glasses are smaller than a wine glass. Um, and they're lovely. They're single serve, so which means that you know, you've, they're perfect every time you open them and pour them and they fit in the fridge. Now, they cost around five euros a bottle, but I think they're worth it just uh, for that. Yeah, well, certainly if you're in a family where there's only maybe one of you drinking yeah, it. absolutely. It's nice to have. It is, yeah. Or if you just like during the summer, if you like, you know, if you're going off down to Ballybunion or somewhere and you want to have 
like you get a case of 24 of them just to keep a half a dozen in the fridge it's a lovely thing to give to somebody I can also see those in the back of wedding cars with straws in them yeah absolutely no spill in the bridesmaids then <laughs> yeah they're perfect but it's just it's a very nice Prosecco and it's, it's really worth trying it's what's in those bottles is really good um, and with the straw of course it goes straight to your head drinking it with the straw yeah that was very fashionable for in, in, in London about seven or eight years ago they started drinking Snipes Champagne which were ferociously expensive uh, with straws um, I've never seen it catch on here too much now but you never know and what percentage alcohol are each of those this is around 11% so it's quite modest yeah they tend to be about yeah 11 and uh, be slightly 11 as well so they're all the same ok great well if anybody is in trouble from the weekend it didn't do what they were meant to do for <laughs> Valentine's they should get on to you forestal.ie and get a case or two or a bottle of do there uh, it's just worth trying you know for that maybe something you have some party coming up I think percent or a sparkling or I have a couple of an Argentinian product well called Pascal Tosso it's lovely France do a Cremant de Loire from the Loire Valley again it's sparkling and they're a lovely um, kick off to, a, to an evening you know you need a bottle a bottle will serve seven or eight people it's just a lovely start for people are arriving for anything in particular I couldn't agree more and yeah. thanks so much for bringing those in and talking about them this evening and we Don't will bother. see you again next month super thanks Sharon cheers Chin Chin Salut Schleinte Thanks again to Ron from Forestal Wine Merchants and if you have a vino question for Ron for his next visit you can email it to me s.noonan at live.ie and I'll put it to him when he is next in studio Still to come tonight, if you're in the market for a hand blender or you want to know how you can use yours more, food writer Dee Laffin has all the info and Frances Nesbitt will be talking to me about the Kilkenny School of Food. Next though, it's time to take a trip to Galway. I was there a few weeks ago at the Foodie Forum and one of my fellow conferencers was none other than John McKenna. John, along with his wife Sally, are an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to places to shop, stay and eat in Ireland, so I was thrilled to catch up with him and find out where the current top hot spots for dining are not only in Galway but a little bit further north. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. We're in Galway John so there's only one thing we can talk about and that's the food scene in Galway. What is your impression of it? Uh, It's pretty much the most radical transformation of a food hub that has occurred in Ireland. I suppose there might be a parallel if you went back to Belfast in the early 90s. You know, when you had Nick Price, you had uh, Paul Reich and you had Michael Dean, and they affected enormous change in a short period of time. But that was very localised, you know, that was really just Belfast city centre. Um, but Galway, and it is almost hard for people to remember now, Galway used to be a terrible city to eat in. Absolutely dreadful. Uh, the, the food culture was full of attitude and full of lousy cooking. And you arrive here now today, it's the centrepiece of the Wild Atlantic Way, it's the only city on the Wild Atlantic Way, and for me it's the best city to eat in Ireland. I'm, I'm discounting the capital, because the capital's got all the money. So that doesn't really count. So if you take Cork, take Belfast, take Waterford, Wexford, wherever, Galway is way ahead of everywhere else. And how they've done it is really pretty extraordinary. If somebody asked you for your top three restaurants in Galway, where would you tell them to go? You see, that's a hard one because one of the secrets about Galway is that it's good for casual dining, it's good for ethnic dining, it's good for mid-market dining, and then it's good for the cutting-edge stuff, you know? 
So it's unusual. Its strength is unusual in the sense that it's strong throughout the, the leagues. You know, it's not just uh, Premiership. It's fourth division. You know, is actually really good. So it, that's a really hard question to answer. But if I'm going to answer it, I would say that I love Wa Cafe because I love the simplicity and the heartfelt nature of the Japanese cooking there. It's not trying to be super slick, it's just really genuine. Um, obviously, like everybody else, I love Kava Bodiga because the spirit of the room is like the spirit of the food, you know, sharing, noisy, boisterous. And I think JP and his team hit that note really perfectly, both with the, with the service and with the grub. And then obviously, end of McAvoy is a chef at a million, really. So Lowe is terrifically exciting. Uh, the fact that it's Edna's first place with his own name above the door is important because he's a great chef, but previously hasn't had his space. And it, you know, he's waited a long time to get there. And he has arrived with a quiet bang, which is suitable for his personality. He's not extrovert. He's not going to be noisy. He's just doing beautifully realized food which talks about where the food comes from, where you are when you're eating it. And he's broken down the barrier between, you know, who's in the kitchen and who's out front, who's serving the food, who's cooking the food. And to me, what Loeb offers is a really kind of intoxicating picture of what a contemporary Irish restaurant can be and should be. And so those would be the three. Um, you know, if I had three nights and I went out of those three places, that would be brilliant eating. For 2015, the top 100 restaurants, which I believe you're you're working it's, on, at it's the imminent. Indeed, okay. it's imminent. Will we see many Galway restaurants in it? You'll see loads of Galway restaurants. Uh, you'll see not only Galway restaurants. You'll see county Galway restaurants and loads of, of Go, uh, Go, Galway city places to stay in the 100 best rest places to stay in Ireland 2015. Both uh, places in Galway City and lots of places in, in Galway County. As I say, it's strong throughout the food culture. And the thing which is encouraging for me in particular, I remember about 15 years ago being up in Connemara and working on a project and seeing the fact that it had zero food production. So I was walking around Clifton early in the morning. All the other holidaymakers are still in their beds. And all the Arctics are there with their engines rolling, unloading frozen food into fairly different places to eat. So what had basically happened was everybody had driven the 59 miles from Galway, gone out to eat and drink, spent their money, and even before they were out of their beds the next morning, the money had left Clifton and was headed back eastwards. And it really broke my heart because I really understood in that little small microcosm what it is to have a sustainable food culture or an unsustainable food culture. And so what's important to me is that so many of the places in Galway make such a feature of their suppliers, their food chain, uh, you know, you know the, the people they work with, the people they support. That's really kind of pivotal. And that's going to make Galway economically so, so much more sustainable. They still have a ways to go in Connemara to get there. But Galway has woken up to that fact that there's no point in uh, bringing in foie gras and serving it in a menu in Galway. That doesn't profit anybody. You need to have Galway seafood, you need to have Galway meats, you need to have friendly farmer chicken, you need to have the local breads, Collarance ham, you know, Brady's beef, Sean Kelly's black pudding from down from Newport. 
And if you have those things, then you will have not only a great culinary hub on the West Coast, but you'll have a great economic hub as well. And really, one, one works with the other. You know, um, the Spanish, when they changed direction and went for cuisine rather than sun, sea, sand and sex holidays, you know, they have built a very strong kind of uh, economic food culture. The, the, the Danes and the Scandinavians and the, the Swedes are doing it now. We can do it. It's easy to do it. It's hard work to do it. But if your focus is on saying the best foods are the best local foods, then it's win-win. The friendly farmer wins. Anir wins. Kai wins. Wa wins. Everybody wins. And the customer wins because the food is better and the food is experiential. You can't get those tastes anywhere else. And that's the key to giving somebody a really unique food experience when they're in Galway and when they're on the Wild Atlantic Way and when they're on the West Coast. We're talking of food experiences in the opening address today at the Foodie Forum. We were actually talking about in the 100 list, it won't just be restaurants, there will be food carts there as well. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think people will say that's kind of a radical step because you've only got 100 restaurants. I mean, we have thousands of restaurants in Ireland, we choose 100, so it's pretty hard to get into it. And actually, some of those featured this year in 2015 actually won't, they won't have a restaurant. In other words, there is no restaurant space. There are no tables. Uh, there's a wall over there. You can sit down on that wall if you like. And uh, well, there might be a park bench. Um, how have we arrived at that situation? For us, the key thing is always creativity. And if that creativity is best expressed by somebody who says, I want to be at arm's length with my customer. And I can tell you one of the things that provoked me in thinking about it, we, I mean, we think about these things actually very slowly. But a year ago, I was up in Derry. I was talking with Kevin Pike. I was speaking at a, at a, at a conference with him from uh, Pike and Palms. And he was detailing how he fell in love with street food in Southeast Asia. He's a great restaurant chef, but his epiphany was street food. And he said, I want to get back to street food, but I want to do it my town. I want to do it my way, and I want to be that close to the customer. And it was the philosophy that underpinned what he does. I knew he was a great chef. I loved his food. But it was the philosophy of the way he thought about the, the, the stance he was making and the direction he was going in. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is not just... Food out, this is not a chipper. This is not just food out of a van. This is not somebody who is too mean to kind of you know pay expensive rent in a city. This is a guy who is saying, this is the way I want to do it. I want I want the customer to be literally two feet away from me. I want to be cooking off the grill, into the box, into your hands. And that philosophy, listening to Kevin a year, 12 months ago, really stayed with me all year when it came to kind of choosing who was going to get in the 100 restaurants. And then I realized, you know, what he's thinking and what he wants to achieve is more important than whether there's a carpet under my feet. I don't care about the carpet. If I have to sit on orange boxes, that's fine. And interestingly enough, another restaurant, I won't say if it's in, but I mean, the, the whiz-bang success of the year, of course, was Harry's Shack. And for anybody who hasn't been to Harry's Shack, it is a shack. It is made of wood. And if you ever wondered what happened to that little uh, seat that you sat on in third class, well, it's up there in Port Stewart, and you can go up there now and sit on it one more time. The difference now is you don't have to bring your own sandwiches and you can get killer food. I love the way earlier on you described fast food. It's not fast food anymore, it's casual food. I think that's a great description of it. And you also told a very great story about how you can make a lot of money. You're very lucky. 
If you're smart, um, I mean, pretty. I think pretty much anybody writing about food in America would say that the smartest restaurateur at work over the last 25 years is a gentleman called Danny Mayer, who started 25, maybe 30 years ago with a place called the Union Square Cafe. He now runs many top-end restaurants in, in New York. You know, he runs restaurants in museums, in galleries. Uh, he probably has maybe 10 restaurants. But about, I think he's a guy from Michigan, and humble beginnings, very hard worker. And in 2004, uh, he opened up a place called Shake Shack. And they did a couple of burgers, they did kind of a frozen custard, because he remembered eating a frozen custard in the kind of burger places when he was a kid. A couple of shakes, soft drinks. And last week, when Shake Shack, which has branches in Dubai, has branches in London, probably has branches in the Far East, uh, has a couple of hundred branches in the United States, and when it went for its IPO, initial public offering, it was valued at something like one and a half million dollars, and Danny Mayer's share of that was 300, I think, $347 million. So there is the story of a guy with a burger shack and, and 10 years, and you go from wanting to make a really nice burger, not, not a fast food burger, it's a fast casual burger. Make a good burger, have a good bun, have a nice pickle, proper ketchup, a good shake, a nice frozen custard. 10 years later, $347 million in your back pocket. Not a bad inspiration for mad, tomorrow's students. Really yeah, mad, yeah. Mad money. Well, you mentioned Harry Shack and over Christmas they had to turn away hundreds of people and really they didn't feel that they were going to open that restaurant all year round. They felt it was going to be a seasonal one. How much weight do you put on what you say and write about these places in terms of creating custom for them? Um, I would put a great, a great deal less weight on what I write and say now than maybe 15 years ago when I was writing every Saturday for the Irish Times. Because 15 years ago, the Irish Times on a Saturday morning was where you went to to get that information. And if you were serious about food, that was where you went. And everybody went there. So you could have a, you could have a big impact 15 years ago. You, you, you could, somebody would open up their newspaper on a Saturday morning and there might be a place I thought I had liked a lot and liked what people were doing. And, and they would get a big response, you know. Now I find uh, that, yes, you can still get a very big response. I mean, you could, we could put something on Facebook. Sally, my wife, is fantastic on social media. But realistically now, it's the biggest cliche of all, but everybody is a critic, you know. And there are lots of people out there sending photographs, sending twi tweets, and saying, I had this wonderful experience, I had this great experience. I mean, yes, hopefully people may pay a little bit of attention to me because I have experience. I've been doing this for 25 years. But realistically, would I have the power now to make a restaurant successful? No, I don't believe I would. But I think if I... So what my job is about nowadays more is about finding interesting new places. I mean, what we're really saying, for example, about the 100 best restaurants this year, it's actually the 100 hottest restaurants this year. It's the really hottest rooms. It's the rooms that people have shown that they most want to be in, you know? Harry's Shack, Chapter One, whatever. Totally different places, but unified by the fact that people say, I want to be in that room, you know? So I, I feel my job now is more of what in, um, in, 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 in kind of business they call being a cool hunter. I'm very, not at all qualified to be a cool hunter because I'm completely uncool. But I hope I can recognize what is cool because I'm trying to judge people's ambition and I'm trying to judge people's sincerity, really, you know? 
And if I find that people are sincere about what they're doing and they have an ambition and their execution is matching their ambition, that's what I want to tell people that to say that this is a good place to go to. This is worth your money. And I think what happens then, it's kind of a cascade effect there. What happens is I might do that, Sally might do it. And then people are onto it very fast because everybody wants to be um, everybody wants to be in the circle as quick as possible. So Harry Shack proved that to an unprecedented level. Uh, I, I did write about it very early on. Um, it did get picked up in the newspapers then, uh, and then they got they, they got a following. But but remember they had a name, you know. Donald Doherty had a name. Derek Craig has a great name as one of the best Northern Irish Donegal chefs. So they had a lot of advantages. Um, but but more generally, I would say it's a cascade effect. I'm, I'm trying to maybe get there first, but really what drives the success for people is, you know, that people come along and say, yeah, that's good, that's good, I want that. Um, and, then, and then it's a snowball going down the hill. I just started rolling. And then other people pick it up and suddenly whoosh, you've got a, a great big avalanche. Well, I am delighted to pick up that ball and run with it. I'm looking forward to visiting um, Harry Shack the next time I'm in the north. It just was not on my radar or my parents' radar. And sure, we're only 40 minutes down the road. Wow. Well, so thanks so much for talking to me today. It's great, Sharon, as ever. Thank you and very much. We will keep in touch. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, John. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's programme. If you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Ron of Forestal Wine Merchants. And just before the break, I was speaking to John McKenna at the Foodie Forum in Galway. A lot of background noise there, so I hope you were able to hear it okay. But sure, that adds to the interview ambiance. Keep an eye on John's website, guides.ie, for an updated list of Ireland's top 100 restaurants as it's coming out very soon and is definitely a fantastic source spanning the whole country. Never fear if you miss some of the show as it will be up on the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all of last year's shows and you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. As I said, I met John at the Foodie Forum and also there was food writer Dee Laffin. Dee's regular slot is going to look at gadgets and this month's chosen one is hand blenders. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. It's great to see you today and you have been out and about looking at stick blenders. Yeah, I live a very glamorous life. <laughs> well, I'd say they're they're an item that a lot of people would have in their kitchen. Yeah, well, this is it. I decided that I thought I'd start looking at gadgets for our bits because I think that it's really interesting because I'm one of those people that I tend to buy a lot of um, gadgets. I'm, you know, and then I, they sit in my kitchen and I do use some of them, but I don't use others. And stick blenders, I think, is one gadget that everybody has in their kitchen. Um, now, people will spend different varying amounts of money on them. You can get them very cheaply or you can get them, you know, you can spend that bit more on them to get a better one. Um, what I try to look at is basically, you know, why are they good? What are the advantages of them? What are the other uses for them that maybe you're not aware of? And then I've got my best and worst one as well. Um, okay. I tried out a few, um, borrowed some from friends and family and things like that, and also um, had a go at one or two um, newer ones that I hadn't tried out just to kind of look in terms of value, you know, that sort of way as well. But um, first of all, I guess I suppose um, is, you know, 
why why are they so good you know why should you have one in your kitchen if you don't have one and I think one of the main things that comes to mind about a stick blender is it's first it's versatile you know so you can use it for almost everything I mean you can actually has so many uses um, and especially if you invest in a good one you can actually do a lot more with it than just blend soup I bet you is the main thing that everyone is thinking about right now it's like I just use it for soup that's probably the only thing you know but um and you know it's just it's it, it's an incomparable uh, convenience you know compared to um, a food processor or um, a, a, nor a normal blender and um, they're so handy to use they're quick you know quick to whip up something and um, they can be cleaned easily they can be cleaned easily um, so like with a food processor you know you're limited with the amount of liquid that you can put in it um, or same with a blender whereas with a stick blender you don't have that because you can whatever pot you've made whatever you're making in you can just stick the stick blender in it so that's one good thing and then with a blender um, the food tends to be left quite lumpy I don't know if you've ever tried and use your uh, your liquid blender for like to blend something like like as if you would with a stick blender and it just doesn't I always found that because the blades they kind of stick to the food and then they don't end up getting that really fine you know if you're making a smoothie or something I've often had lumps of apple left in mine and things like that so a stick blender will kind of munch through all of that and then um, blenders and food processors are harder to clean whereas your stick yeah. blender I think that's the one thing as well your stick blender they're also called um, immersion blenders which I had never heard of um, but they basically, um, you know, you can most of them you can snap off the long That's right, main yeah. part of it, and you can put that in the in the washing machine or dishwasher, I should say, not the washing machine. That'd be disastrous. Um, or in the sink as well, and uh, they're just easy to rinse out. Yeah, and know. it just takes a few minutes. Yeah, to do it. yeah. Well, sometimes with a food processor, like I love food processors. Uh, you know, we, I'm very fortunate we have a KitchenAid in our house where I am, but um, they do come with loads of little bits, and it is just a little bit of. And I think that's the main thing about gadgets and appliances, um, is that, and with the stick blender, is it's actually probably one of the most convenient ones. It's the one we're all likely to use, the one we're all likely to have, and we don't mind cleaning because it's so easy. Yeah, and it's very easy to pull it out and get it up and running. It's only a few seconds, and it doesn't take up a lot of space. Oh yeah, you can put it in a drawer, you know, that sort of way. Mm. Your food processor, you kind of keep it in the box, in the, in the press somewhere, or something like that, you know. Or you leave it out on the counter, and then it just gathers dust, and then you end up washing it, and you know, sure. all these kind of things. But yeah, so I, I really kind of think it's great. And I mean, obviously I've already mentioned soups, but you know, smoothies is another thing. Juices, everyone's juicing at the moment, so you can make juices with it sauces and dips as well are kind of they're the more obvious uses of a stick blender um, but other uses um, are for to get out lumps say if you're you're having people over for dinner you've made gravy it's gone you know clumpy on you and um, you know just get a stick blender in there and that will kind of mash that out trick. yeah no, and I didn't. mash as well you yeah. know those little hard potatoes if you really if you're trying to impress somebody I guess or you know if you, I don't mind lumps but I mean some people do it's great just like that just to whiz it um, another thing is whipping cream you can whip cream with your stick blender um, and a lot of people think that and some of them actually come with a whisk attachment and um, the more expensive ones so you can actually put that on it but just the normal stick blender you 
can whip your cream up. Do you need to plunge it up and down as you're doing it to get the yeah, best effect? Yeah, like almost kind of if you think that you are using it like a whisk. So if you would kind of move it around the bowl of cream as you're doing it um, to try and get that whip up. And then you don't have to move it up and down too much, but just move it around the bowl the same way you would kind of with your electric mixer. Um, you can beat eggs with it if you were that lazy. I'm not sure anyone was. I, I, you can't beat a fork with it for the excuse the bun, but um, uh, yeah, you can beat eggs with your uh, blender. And also, um, a lot of people nowadays are using nut butters. I know we spoke about it on a previous show, and they tend to separate. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Sometimes, if you leave them for too long, they can separate. And they're a great thing. Now you can get in there. They're kind of hard to mix, but you can get. A stick blender in them if you and to kind of mix that back up okay yeah, yeah to put them back together to get it into like a spreadable consistency or like if you have enough butter that you don't you bought it and you took a risk and you don't like it because it's too lumpy you can um put your stick blender in there and make it smoother so just kind of that way as well but i'm um, also pureeing fruit and vegetables so i don't know if you have little kids um, anyone listening but they're great for mums for baby food um, you know if you're after if you're making some potato or carrots or something like that um, whatever vegetables really for baby food and you know just whizzing it up before you put it in ice cube trays or Tupperware in the fridge keep it for um, ahead in the week um, but also things like tomato puree if you want to make your own tomato puree tomato sauces applesauce um, it's another one and, and then things like guacamole and salsa again those kind of dips they're brilliant if you don't like them chunky I love them chunky but uh, stick blenders are brilliant for all those kind of things um, I, I kind of asked a few people and the main disadvantage of them that a lot of people especially women mentioned to me was the splashing oh yeah I think we've all done it we've made a soup probably tomato soup of course typically and you put the soup blender in and it just goes splashes onto your white blouse that you just happen to be wearing because of course when you're uh, trying to blend tomato soup and um, so there's some solutions to that and it, it's all about how much liquid the pot you're using and how much liquid is in it so if you have a pot of soup let's just take for example and it's full more or less up to the top like if it's a lot you don't want to stick a stick bender in that mm. you want to pour some of that out or transfer it into a bigger pot so if anyone has a really big um, pasta pot or a cylinder shaped um, glass even some of them come with these um, and they stop that splashing it's the best way another way um, which is kind of my own kind of I don't know if anyone else probably does it but is a tea towel that's what I do <laughs> That's what I was going to say. After you kind of cover it all a with the tea towel, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a tea towel or um, something like that. Just kind of put it over the edge of the lid um, as you're holding it and whiz that. So that will stop that as well. But but it is to do with the amount of liquid in the pot that causes that splash. And it's particularly if you're intending on eating the soup straight away, like if you're not reheating, so you don't have time to let it cool before you blend it. You don't want hot soup being splashed back on you. I've also done that. It's it's not a good idea no, definitely not. <laughs> but um and then just i tried out as i said a few different ones and 
my best and worst, I think starting with the worst, um, was one I got in Tesco's. It's Tesco's own brand. I'm sorry to name and shame, but um, it's it was one of the cheaper ones because I kind of, I used to always buy, you know, with stick blenders, the kind of cheaper ones. And this one was a little bit more expensive. It wasn't their most cheap one. I think you can actually get a stick blender in other supermarkets as well that do kind of appliances and things like that for less than a tenner mm. I think you can get them for five or six euros but guys like really it's just not going to blend anything well I think when you're going to use it regularly yeah that it's well worth spending yeah. a bit more and I think I mean that goes with everything really doesn't it I mean mm. it's worth investing a little bit more money and then having it for longer and it being better at its job um, but yeah the Tesco kind of own brand range are the best and um, one of mine the, it didn't actually the one I got didn't um, the stick part of it didn't detach so it made it inconvenient to wash because then I was bringing over the cord with the plug and everything and the, even the part that has a motor in it you know I was worried about getting water in on that and I couldn't understand why it wouldn't detach because most of them do sure, yeah. but I think that was just part of the, the make of it so yeah and also it was white and it started to stain really quickly which is really annoying I know it's only a simple thing and I suppose a good sign that you're using it but I always feel that it looks less clean um, or part of me tells me it isn't clean properly if there's if it's kind of badly stained sure yeah so I think that the more expensive ones are I don't like using the word expensive but the ones that are cost a bit more money tend to be stainless steel um, or kind of other types of metal that it doesn't stain and they're they're really great um, my best blender was the um, Braun Multi-Quick uh, 7 blender. Um, it's just absolutely fantastic. It's, um, it's got this smart speed control, they call it, which basically means that it has a button at the very top of the handle that when you squeeze it, you're controlling the, the speed. So the looser your grip, like the, low, the slower it gets, and then the more you pull it in or push it in, and um, it, it gets stronger so it's really good like that if you're kind of whizzing something like you were almost saying with the cream where you want to kind of you know go with kind of pulse it it's almost like having a you're controlling a pulse and I think that I found that quite good for when I was getting near the end of whipping something and um, that I was able to kind of go okay it's almost there now I'll just slow down the speed a little bit you know so you had that control and the the blender itself is like the Tesco one was, was so light you know it was so throwaway almost whereas the Braun one it's, it's it's really solid it's quite heavy in your hand and um, it is stainless steel so it wouldn't um, it wouldn't stain um, and it also comes with a lot of attachments which I just it was great it actually is almost like having a food processor you can um, shred things with it you can uh, beat stir it whips things it actually slice it has um, things on it that you can slice things and even you can there's this massive um, bowl attachment with it and another blade that you attach to the normal stick bender means you can knead pasta and dough with it oh, very which is really impressive yeah and I mean you know the amount of power that you need for like dough it, it, so it just shows the power in it and um, it's really it's really inexpensive as well so in How terms much of it? value um, they they have different models of it and they range from like 39 99 up to a more expensive um, 
price. So you kind of get what you mean. You know, but they have different um, price levels even within the, the range as well. And Braun is a brand that was kind of gone for a long time. They had stopped producing here and been on the market here in Ireland and they just relaunched last year. And the products they've brought out for kitchen appliances are really, really good value, but good products as well. So I kind of, I'm a very big fan. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that's a very comprehensive uh, review you. of the Stick Blenders Day. Thank you so much. Do you know what you're reviewing next month? Um, I haven't actually thought about it yet. No, I'll have to have a think. But um, possibly maybe something along the processing lines again. So, but if anyone has any ideas, I mean, I'm happy to open to suggestions. Okay. Well, we'll ask the the listeners then if they do have any suggestions to drop me an email s at live.ie, and we look forward to talking to you next month. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Dee Laffin told us everything we need to know about hand blenders in a very atmospheric, noisy setting in Galway at the Foodie Forum. Earlier on in the programme, Ron Forrestal was talking wine and John McKenna and I were also talking at the Foodie Forum, which was held in GMIT recently. There were lots of students there who were hugely interested in the talks and demos and perhaps you're interested in doing a course. You might be in the market for a one day one, an evening or something more full time. Well, last year, a school of food opened in Kilkenny and I have programme director Francis Nesbitt on the line to tell me more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Francis, thanks for taking the call this evening. No problem. Tell us, why was the School of Food set up? The School of Food was uh, an initiative created by the LEADER project, uh, so it's rural, a European Rural Development Fund, and those guys had some money left over toward the end of the programme, uh, which was due to finish at the end of 2013. And in Kilkenny, the local uh, leader company created a competition and invited a number of towns around Kilkenny to pitch for spending that money. And Thomastown uh, included in their pitch a professional chef training college. The reason behind that was one of the people involved in the project as a restaurateur, and he knew from experience that it's very hard to find chefs in Ireland. There's a shortage of them throughout the country in the West, as there is down here in the Southeast. And it, he figured that it had a lot to do with the way that we're training chefs now. So we've moved to a degree model and away from the kind of apprenticeship model, which used to be there in years gone by. And in many cases, the first experience that a new chef has of working in a commercial kitchen is after they've graduated and they've gotten their first job. So at the core of the Thomastown Town of Food application was a chef training program. And if you're going to develop a state-of-the-art school for training chefs, well, you'll have all the facilities there for doing amateur-type uh, cookery classes as well. And that's what the School of Food is currently offering. So is it open five days a week, kind of from early in the morning to late at night, just running that, courses consistently? Well, that will be the plan. So we've literally just opened the doors. We've run our first uh, amateur cookery classes. They're evening and Saturday afternoon-type classes to begin with until we learn how the building works. But we want to see the investment of almost a million euro that we've put into the building utilised as much as possible. So the plan would be that there would be professional courses in the training kitchen Monday to Friday 
morning to evening and then evenings throughout the week there'll be amateur classes and then at the weekend there'll be kind of lifestyle and cookery classes baking brew your own beer uh, cooking for men cooking for seniors and there's also a community aspect to the training that we want to provide so we want to offer very very low cost or free uh, classes on nutrition to the local community and further afield for those who maybe wouldn't typically be able to afford training classes so already we've offered some classes on uh, cooking for young mums, uh, cooking for the elderly, and cooking on a budget. Um, we hear all too often that people can't afford to make ends meet, and food is short on the table and so on at the end of the week. And in some cases, not in all, but in some cases that's maybe because of poor management of budgets. And so we kind of see it as part of our remit to try and help with that and provide some education around how to uh, how to reduce hearty meals on a, on a restricted budget. So there's a very diverse range of courses there. So whether you're somebody just coming out of school and you want to develop a career as a chef or if you're just a mother, father at home catering for a family, there are, there's different courses on offer there that are going to suit you. That's right. And this comes about because of the nature of the group behind the project. So this isn't a commercial for-profit enterprise. This is a community effort together the school to win the original competition put together the school and so you've a range of people involved you've the restaurateur myself i have an it an entrepreneurial background you've community activists you've those who work with people with uh, disabilities and so on and each of us wants to put our own particular steer on where the school of food was going and so we offer those courses to the disadvantaged we offer courses to amateur cooks we offer horticultural training classes on the two-acre site which surrounds the school, and we offer business incubation support. So there's also a kitchen in the school which startup food businesses can hire on a half-day or a full-day basis, and they can come in, it's CHO approved, they can come in, produce their, their foodstuffs, and take that away and sell it at market. Or they can provide that for sale in local super value stores because we've partnered up with super value they've sponsored the incubation side of the of the uh, school of food and they have the food academy which helps people take their concept for a food product uh, and turn it into a reality that's for sale in their stores well i think that's a great resource about the kitchen being there because sadly a lot of people think if they make their jam they can just make it and go out and sell it at market and we know there's a lot more to that there, there really is, and the, the costs can be very onerous. You know, so if you have the environmental health officer around to the house, they'll give you a list of things which you need to do to make your kitchen, uh, to get your kitchen approved. There's all kinds of restrictions on how you can use it and how much you can produce. So if you're a startup business and you want to produce jams or chutneys or something like that, your initial investment can be in the thousands before you ever sell a pot of jam. So what we're offering is, at the moment, the rates are just €30 Euro for a half a day, so it's very, very little. Somebody can come in, use all of the facilities that's there, that, that's there, the, all of the equipment that's there, produce, produce your goods with our guidance on things like uh, HACCP, so food safety and so on, and then take that away and sell it at the local farmer's market or get involved with Super Value and the Food Academy and sell it in some local Super Value stores. You've mentioned the site there a couple of times and it's not a purpose built building insofar as you didn't build it from the ground up. It was a national school, was it, that you have converted? It, it, it is. This really, 
like we, the, the reason we want to get the word out about the school is not just to attract people to the School of Food to do courses. Really, this is a perfect example of what can be achieved in a community if a band of like-minded people get together and do a bit of hard work. So in Thomastown, a very attractive town in Kilkenny, on the banks of the River Nore, there was a site right at the centre of the town, really, the former Boys National School, on a two-acre uh, green site, but a building that was built in 1947. It had been empty for about six or seven years. Uh, at one stage, it had been muted that it was going to be bought by Aldi, and a new Aldi supermarket was going to go in there, but the, the crash happened, and really all that was happening to the school was that it was getting more and more vandalised and you know, further into disrepair. At some stage, we were going to be looked at, looking at a, a burned-out shell in the centre of town. So instead of that happening, we now have €1 million Euro gone into reinvigorating the school, reinventing the school. It's an attractive site now. It's on two acres of grounds that are being turned into a, a community garden and a horticultural training garden. So we already have things up like polytunnels. The gardens are divided into, divided into beds. There's seating for visiting groups. and There's a picnic area planned. The building itself has gotten a lick of paint, and uh, the lights are on, and there's, uh, there's you know, people actually using it. So it, it's a fantastic example of what can be achieved if there's a bit of money investment uh, put in, and the leader, uh, the Rural Development Programme is running in every part of the country, in Limerick as well as in Kilkenny, and if there is some people who are willing to do a bit of hard work. There's also been a lot of fundraising and that's to be commended. Tell us about that. I've, I've heard something about the Night of 1000 Feasts. What exactly is that? That was one of our, that was one of our major fundraising efforts. So Leader are providing €700,000 and in order for us to access that, we had to raise just short of €200,000 ourselves. We had about a year and a half to do that. So far we've raised about €180,000 so we're still about 20000 short. We've taken some uh, loan support from UKIT to provide funding to community groups and social enterprises. Uh, and one of the, the, we, the fundraising has come about through private donations, sponsors like SBD, Supervalue and Calor Gas, and then through a number of fundraising events, uh, the traditional table quizzes and long table dinners and so on. But one of the most innovative ideas we had was for the Night of a Thousand Feasts, where we asked our supporters to host a dinner in their house as part of the Saver Kilkenny Food Festival, invite some friends or family around, maybe ones that they haven't seen in a while, use some local produce, so Kilkenny produces some fantastic foods, and we arranged reduced rates, discounts, and so on, with local producers. So people hosting a feast would get this food at reduced rates. Super Value offered a 10% discount at the till for anybody who was having a feast, and then those people who hosted feasts would simply ask their guests to dip into their pockets, put some money in an envelope. That money was all gathered together at the end, and that particular event raised us almost €5,000. Wow. Yeah, it was great. But it was a great buzz on the night as well. We, we used social media to keep the various feasts happening around the county in touch with each other. Twitter and Facebook were alive with photographs from various feasts. Uh, one of the local pubs in town hosted a the resistance so it was a French team themed feast everybody went in costume uh, there were some great photographs from that uh, some of the committee then went around the various feasts uh, when they were invited and just told people about the project uh, 
everybody is excited about it. It's a fantastic kind of community-based product project. And, um, yeah, the people that went to the feasts were very, very generous. And moving into the future then, in terms of the vision for the long-term sustainability of the project, what is the plan if the government funding isn't there to to kind of support you after a few years? Well, one of the things we did during the preparation for the project um, was to go on a fact-finding mission around Ireland and the UK. So we went to visit a number of places that had been set up as cookery schools in the past, some with state support and some without. We learned a lot. So we have a lean model. We're not heavily staffed. We rely heavily on volunteers for the the running of the school. We have a number of uh, kind of verticals in the business model. So there's the horticultural training, community garden. There's also the amateur cookery classes. And they're aimed, as I said already, at a number of uh, different demographics. So some of those courses are more expensive than others. The incubation kitchen brings in its own income from people who are hiring it uh, for the half day or the day at a time. And then when it comes to the professional training for the uh, students who want to be chefs, each student will be expected to make a small contribution towards the cost of the course, but that will be privately funded um, by us with thanks to uh, our partners uh, and some philanthropists. So the long-term viability of the project relies on continued fundraising as well as having a commercial aspect to the to some of the classes and if listeners want to find out more where do they need to go uh, lots of information about the project is available on the website so it's schooloffood.ie and this is all part of the town of food project uh, it, which has been running Kilkenny over the last couple of years but schooloffood.ie there's a list of courses there if people want to they can help us by making a donation or they can get in touch with an email address on the site and if they have any particular questions, they can give us a shout. And of course, we'd be happy to help any other community groups who uh, maybe have some projects underway and they need some advice on fundraising or anything else. We'd be happy to share our experiences. Well, that's a very generous offer and one that people should certainly take you up on. Francis, we wish you all the very best with it and um, thanks for talking to me this evening. You're very welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. We're out of time now. Thanks so much for your company and to all of tonight's guests, Ron Forrestal, John McKenna, Dee Laffin and Francis Nesbitt. Remember the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show if you missed any of the show tonight or maybe an older one. I'll be back at the same time next week, all being well and hopefully not sounding as hoarse. Have a fab week and until then, I'm off for a hot whiskey. Bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!